Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, Episode 5. At the time of this recording, according to BitcoinAverage.com, a millibit is trading at 59 cents. Or another way to say it is $590 per Bitcoin. So, Lidge, what are Bitcoins trading at at Mount Gone? I mean, uh, Mount Gox? Mm, mm, mm. Well, that's still gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining us today as we podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm John Barrett. And I'm Lid Shaw. And we're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love to talk about Bitcoins. And share what we learn with you, the listener. Welcome to the show, and thanks for listening. On today's show, Lidge and I head to New York City. New York City? That's right, we take you straight to Wall Street to hear from Paul Vigna, a reporter with the Wall Street Journal and author of BitBeat, a new column about everything having to do with bitcoins and the future of finance. Then we bring you right back here to the studio for more talks with local bitcoin advocate Bill Butler. He tells us about helping businesses adopt bitcoin and getting bitcoins into the hands of the consumers as well. We also invite another local Bitcoin enthusiast, Levi Self, into the studio. So stay right here for more from Bitcoins and Gravy. Today on the show, Lidge and I are very pleased to welcome Paul Vigna, a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Paul, welcome. How are you doing, fellas? Doing great. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here, Paul. Tell our listeners, please, why a reporter from the Wall Street Journal would be talking with two Bitcoin nuts from East Nashville, Tennessee. Well, you know, I was hanging out one night, looking around and, and scoping, you know, scouring for news as we usually do. And the first thing I came across was your song. I didn't even know the podcast, but I saw a reference to the song. Someone said, hey, here's a Bitcoin song, Ochi Satoshi. Went online, went to YouTube, listened to the song, liked it, thought it was catchy, and thought, I gotta, I gotta find out who did this song. And that's how I started, you know, digging in. And then I found the podcast, and then I, I found out about you guys. And that's how I came to it. I came to it through your song. Paul, thanks. Hey, it was a lot of fun writing the song, and I was honored to read the Wall Street Journal article where you mentioned my song and you mentioned about the songwriters of old. I really did write the song in the spirit of the Freedom Fighters, the Pete Seekers. So, hey, thanks a lot for that plug. I really appreciate that. And of course, the song is recorded by Lid Shaw right here in East Nashville, Tennessee at the Toy Box Studio. Uh, let's see, Paul, you write a column for the Wall Street Journal called BitBeat. Can you tell us a bit about the column? Right. Yeah, we started doing it a couple of weeks ago, actually. I mean, basically, I'm a markets reporter, and I write for one of our blogs here at the Journal. It's called Money Beat. But I've been writing a lot about Bitcoin over the last nine months or so. And it's almost like it's funny. Now I tell people it's kind of like if I was in college, my major is the markets and my minor is Bitcoin. And it's actually, in some ways, it's kind of morphing because there's so much going on right now that, I mean, almost all I do is write about Bitcoin. The whole Mt. Gox story is breaking and scrambling and everyone's on top of it. And it's really interesting from my point of view, because this was something that the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I'll be very honest with you. The first time somebody suggested that we write about it on the blog, I said, we're not writing about that. What is that Bitcoin? You know, uh, I really scoffed at it. It's the kind of thing, there's, there's an old saying in journalism that, you know, one time is a happenstance, two times is a coincidence, and three times makes a trend. And I heard about Bitcoin once, and I scoffed. I heard about Bitcoin again, and I thought, oh, and like it kind of stuck in my, my craw. And then, and this was not a very long period of time, you know, and then I heard about it again, and I said, okay, maybe we should start taking this seriously. So I started writing about it, and when I started doing it, you did not have a lot of attention on it. Most people thought like I thought. Uh, that has changed really drastically in just, you know, in under a year. And now it's, you know, editors come to us and say, you have to write this story, this story. You know, I mean, people really are tuned in to Bitcoin. It's become a huge story. It's probably a bigger story in the financial media than it is out in the real world. It's probably like the biggest groups are, you know, guys like you in the community itself. And then there's the financial media. And then there's the general public, which still isn't really very aware of it. It seems like it's becoming more so, but it's just a big thing, especially for business types. I mean, you know, we're all reporters. We're all looking for big stories and news stories and something interesting. And and I think what really kind of catches our 
imagination about it is that this is something, and this is my personal opinion, really, it really kind of takes the real world, I don't want to say, you know, real, but you know, whatever, the fiat world, the hard currency world, uh, it takes that world and kind of casts it in a new light. And to me, that's what's really fascinating about it. Uh, I, you know, I don't know where Bitcoin is going. I don't know if it's going to make it, if one of the alternative currencies is going to make it. But it really kind of takes everything we know about money and financial systems and, and cash and banking, and it just casts it in a new light. And I think people will more and more come around to that point of view. And it actually, you know, it also raises some uncomfortable questions about those things, questions that are not quite so easily answered. So to me, when I'm writing about it, that's kind of where I'm coming from. You know, I don't have a wallet. I'm not, I don't have any Bitcoin. You know, I've, I've remained kind of objective in that sense. I haven't gotten native and jumped in. But to me, that's what's really, really fascinating about it. Absolutely. You know, you had mentioned in one of your articles that Bitcoin was sometimes viewed as the Lindsay Lohan of the financial world. And so how do you feel about that? Do you think it's the teen celebrity that's been getting yeah. too much attention too soon? Yeah, in a way. There was a, a guy named uh, Alex Daly that I interviewed last week, and he said that. And I thought it was really funny. It kind of makes sense. I mean, you look at Bitcoin, and it is still something that is Forming. It is still something that is growing. We talked to the developers. It was basically a five-person development team for the entire thing. It is definitely something that is still growing. It is something that is still developing. I don't think you have all the systems in place. And I think the whole debacle with Mt. Gox really kind of shows where Bitcoin is right now. And it's interesting, the story in its own right, but it is also interesting in, in what it illustrates about Bitcoin. And the fact is that Mt. Gox came on early, but they were not prepared for the developments. They were not prepared for the problems, and they were not prepared for the volume and the attention that they've gotten. And you can see how that's created massive problems for them. But it really does illustrate how young Bitcoin is. And I don't think people kind of quite grasp that. When you have all this hype, you have all these stories I think the stories kind of make it seem like Bitcoin is this formed thing. Hey, here it is, you know, take it out of the box and it's ready to go. Well, no, it's not ready to go. They're still building it. I mean, it's still the thing that Alex Daly said, the guy I interviewed and I thought was interesting. He said, you know, this is basically an alpha technology. It's not even a beta technology. And you can debate whether it's alpha or beta, but I think the fact of the matter is, it's it's not something that is completely ready for launch and i think if they had had more time under the radar they would have gotten they would have solved a lot of the problems you're seeing right now without as much attention and i think the attention in some ways is a detriment but I also don't think this is an existential crisis for Bitcoin. I really just don't. I don't think that the problems at Mt. Gox are going to just upend the whole thing and it's going to go away. I do think that this is a problem, something that was probably inevitable, and I do think it's something that they'll get past. You know, the Bitcoin itself will get past. Uh, I just think the you know some of the attention, some of the hype, makes it seem like it's a much bigger problem than it is. So, Paul, tell me, is anybody there on Wall Street talking about Mt. Gox in a different way? Maybe about any malfeasance on the part of Mark Carpelli's? I have not personally talked to anybody on Wall Street raising that question, but that is. Definitely a question that has to be raised. I mean, I think Mt. Gox has had just a, a terrible communication strategy. They've had a series of problems. Uh, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I, you know, last summer and again now, I pretty much flat out asked them if they were having bank runs and you get no answer from them, which raises the specter of, you know, what's really going on there. And I, I don't know if you saw the report that was circulating that said that they were basically way, way over indebted, that what they had on hand was not nearly what they had promised out to their customers. I, I don't know if there's any malfeasance at Mt. Gox. Nobody knows yet. But that is that's a big question that needs to be asked. And in some respects, they have raised that question themselves with the way they've operated, with all the withdrawals, you know, halts, with all the problems they've had with their terrible communication strategy. Uh, I, I think you're going to have people trying to compare this to things that have happened in, you know, in the capital markets. And the question is going to be raised. Is this a Lehman moment? Is this MF Global? Is this Continental Illinois? You know, what is this? We, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Personally, I, 
I shouldn't even speculate as to what I think it is, but I have <laughs> oh, my yeah, own speculate. thoughts on it. But, you know, we're going to have to wait and see what it is. But I think all those questions have to be asked, and eventually they will, of course, be answered. The, the question is, how does the Bitcoin community respond to it, right? Because, look, there's clearly not going to be a government bailout. There's clearly not going to be the kind of response that you would see on Wall Street. What I really think is interesting, this is, I mean, people love to talk about free markets. Oh, we need free markets, free markets, free markets. But when the Feta hits the fan, nobody wants it to be a free market. Bitcoin is a free market, and you are going to see a free market response, whatever it is, whether the community rallies around Mount Gox, whether they let Mount Gox go, whether the customers are made whole, whether the customers lose their money, whatever happens will really be a, a very free market response. Like I said, this had to happen. You had to have a case like this to prove the resiliency of the system. Can the system absorb the failure of a large player like Mt. Gox? I think that's a very critical question. And you talk about the development of Bitcoin, Bitcoin being an alpha technology or a beta technology, whichever it is. If it is going to be a stable, trusted platform, it has to be able to withstand something like this. Because these things happen in the real world and they're going to happen in the Bitcoin world. So you have to be able to withstand something like this. You have to prove that your system can hold up to this. So I think there are people out there that probably are welcoming this as a test case like that. You know, Paul, to me, it's like the abusive father who, once they go away or die or are incarcerated, the child, Bitcoin, has the ability to live a normal life and can then flourish you're and saying, can then do what saying, it's meant to do. So you're saying Mt. Gox is the abusive father? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like you said, this isn't really going to be a situation of a government bailout. It's a little bit more of a Mt. Gox protester with a payout. And in other news, you had an article recently about Bitcoin and pot. How high do you think Bitcoin will get and how high do you think the people can get with Bitcoin? Uh, is that a, that's pun intended, I'm assuming. Yeah, right? pun intended. <laughs> no, but yeah, tell us about this story with uh, Bitcoin and pot. This developed a month or so ago. A guy who runs a couple of medicinal marijuana dispensaries in Washington state had contacted me because he read something I wrote on Bitcoin. He had just heard about it and he was trying to figure the whole thing out. And I think you know, you started to hear this as soon as Colorado and Washington decriminalized it on the state level. You started to hear people wondering if Bitcoin and pot would get together because the marijuana industry's problem is that, yes, it's made legal on the state level recreationally in Colorado and Washington. And for medicinal purposes, I think it's 23 states is the number. So at the state level, in a lot of places, you have legal marijuana. But on the federal level, it is still illegal. I think it's a class one category. It's in the same category as you know heroin and cocaine. So the banks don't want to do business with the marijuana community. So a lot of these guys end up having to really jury rig their banking relationships. It's really interesting. I did talk to a bunch of guys on this and look, they want to pay their taxes. They want to have banking relationships. They want to be considered retailers like any other retailer, but because of the federal laws, they have a problem. As far as you know, law enforcement goes, the guideline has been, if it's legal on the state level and you're doing it legally, we're not going to prosecute you. But the banks have not wanted to take that chance. So earlier this year, you started to hear people say, well, maybe Bitcoin could be a solution for the medicinal marijuana industry. If they're having a problem with the banks, if they're having a problem with the credit card companies, maybe Bitcoin can be that chance. And one guy that I talked to, he experimented with it. Bitcoin, not marijuana. No pun intended. He, he experimented. He opened it. He started taking yeah, no, Actually, it wasn't any pun intended, but I realized it was a pun after I started. He started accepting Bitcoin for purchases. And it was interesting because he was doing this and not everybody was convinced that it was going to be a good idea. Other people in Washington state even weren't convinced it would be a good idea. I talked to people in Colorado and in Colorado, they thought it was a bad idea and they didn't want to do it. And it's really interesting. It's because in Colorado, they said, well, we don't trust Bitcoin. We think that it's, you know, basically a platform for a lot of drug dealers and we don't want to be associated with it. So in Colorado, they were against it. In Washington, they were noncommittal. But this one guy, Sean Green, who runs a couple of marijuana dispensaries, he wanted to try it out. So he tried it out, started taking it, got a little bit of media attention. He had an account with, I think it was Coinbase. And as soon as Coinbase found out what his business was, they dropped him. 
because they didn't want to be associated with him. So it's fascinating. You have these two industries that are growing rapidly on the you know the outskirts of genteel society, and both of them are looking at each other extremely warily, and they don't really want to do business one with the other. And it's re- it's very fast. So he said, Sean Green, he said, look, I tried it. It didn't work. He said, my, my, my goal was to test it out and I tested it out and it didn't work. And what the, they still have a big problem in the medicinal marijuana industry. I mean, they don't have clarity on how the banks are going to handle them and are going to have to deal with them. And that's a huge problem. It's a huge question over there. But for right now, it seems like this, at least this first experiment, but with uh, Bitcoin and pot did not work out. I agree. You know, I'm looking forward to a day when we see the hemp movement which is completely different from the marijuana movement. We see the hemp movement really take off and we're no longer importing hemp from Canada and hemp from Asia. And you know, it's ridiculous that we cannot grow hemp here. I think we're going to be able to. I think it's going to be a great boon for the U.S. economy. And I think 10 years from now, we're going to see that we have many hemp farmers here in the United States and that the hemp farming will be extremely profitable. Paul, do me a favor as we close this interview. Let your imagination run wild for just a minute and tell us what is the worst Worst thing, in your opinion, that could happen with Bitcoin over the next year or two years? And what is the best thing that could happen? The two things that I think are most important in terms of the growth of Bitcoin are, one, without a doubt, how the the venture capital industry approaches it and how much money gets poured into it and what kinds of businesses you see developing on top, you know, they call it the rails, on top of the rails. I think that that's going to be a major, I think that already is a big development, but I think that is the more important development. And that's something that is kind of it's going to fly under the radar more. It's not going to get as much attention, but I think it's extremely important. The other thing that's very important is just you know consumer acceptance of it. How many retailers take it? How many retailers keep taking it? How many people come to it? You know, the, the more people that accept it, the bigger it gets. I think those are the two most important things to watch on the pro side. On the con side, you know, again, it gets back to the whole Mt. Gox thing. They have to prove that this is a system that can safely protect people's money. Look, if Target gets hit by hackers and credit card numbers are taken and information is stolen and all that stuff, well, that's going to happen. And people have already come to accept that because they have grown up with dollars. They have grown up with that system. They don't question that system because that system is hundreds of years old. It's been around. People think it's going to be around. Even when you have hackers, even when your credit card numbers can get stolen and all your information can get broken and it happens to people, you know it happens to people. Still, nobody questions the system. Bitcoin does not have that luxury. Bitcoin has a higher burden of proof. They have to prove that they can keep people's money safe. They have to prove that they can withstand hackers. They have to prove that they can withstand big players like Mt. Gox going under. And it gets back to what we were saying about the media attention, about the rapid growth, about them being the teen celebrity. If all that comes too fast and they can't do those things, that's the biggest threat to Bitcoin. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. I do think the system has kind of reached a point where it can withstand that, but that hasn't been proven yet. That's just my thought. That's what we're going to see over the next year, I think. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell our listeners how they can find you? Yeah, you know, just go to the Money Beat blog at wsj.com, and I'm in there, and we put out the BitBeat Daily. It's not uh, embargoed for a set time. We kind of put it out whenever we, we get it done and written, but that's a daily post, and I'm there. And if you want to, uh, my my email, it's just paul.vinia at wsj.com, and my Twitter handle is just uh, my name, at Paul Vigna. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible out there on the inner tubes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you on here and a lot of great insight. You have a lot to say about it, and it's great being able to have you here. We look forward to hopefully having you back again on a future show. Paul, can we talk to you again in a couple of weeks? Yeah, of course. Listen, I'd be happy to do it. I like the podcast. You know, I'm a fan. So, yeah, I'd be happy to come back on. All right, great. Hey, thanks so much, Paul. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. On today's show, we have a special guest. Our guests are always special, but this particular one is a friend from the local Nashville Bitcoin meetup, someone I would consider a resident expert in things I don't know enough about yet. Uh, This is Bill Butler from Music City Bitcoins. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Bill. It's great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do and tell us about your business? 
Yeah, I uh, my business right now, I'm basically a consultant and I help businesses um, get a little bit more out of uh, what they're doing, do some medical consulting and uh, some projects for a couple of companies in town. But uh, my Bitcoin is a hobby that I think could end up in a business. Currently, I, I run uh, Music City Bitcoins, which is an advocacy group. And uh, our, our goal is to just simply inform businesses and individuals about what Bitcoin is, try to educate them, try to teach them the tools that... Uh, are safe, the good ways to buy currencies, the proper exchanges to look at for cryptocurrencies, the right places to read so yeah. that they're getting information that uh, is relevant and doesn't sort of lead them astray, which it's easy to do when you're just learning. How long have you been in the know about Bitcoin? When did you discover it? And I remember a time when it was around 5 or $6 a Bitcoin, and I remember mm. looking at it and thinking it's really interesting. And I remember I downloaded the client and... You know, about a year and a half passed or a year passed since I did that. And the next time I, it sort of hit my radar, I heard something about it being at 30. And then really it was about the time that it was in the 80 range where I started to take real interest in it. Do you have a tech background that led you this way? I started uh, one of the first internet service providers in Nashville in, in 93 with a couple buddies out of college. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin sort of was an, I had an aha moment with it in the same way I did the first time I saw a web browser. You know, you see the web browser for the first time and you see a picture in text and you realize you can click on the text and go to another bit of text. And and all of a sudden it it felt at the time that you'd never have to reproduce another piece of information ever again. The idea would be that information could live in one spot. And you'd always just reference that information. You wouldn't actually recreate that information somewhere. And so that was, that's kind of the ideal internet. Of course, it didn't come out that way. But there's all kinds of things like Wikipedia that sort of made that a reality where um, definitive content can exist in one place. And so Bitcoin, the, the blockchain, the ledger aspect of it, you know, for me, it has a very similar ring to it when it comes to um, Store of value. I'm not going to use the word currency or money or anything like that. We'll just call it a store of value and a, and a, and a public record. Uh, I, I think it's got tons of potential. Well, okay, so besides it having tons of potential uh, just as a base technology, I think all the metaphors of the parallels that Satoshi sort of built into it, the idea that you mine it and the idea that it's mined at a certain rate and the idea that it's a finite resource, all these things that you can't see about traditional currencies that you can see about Bitcoin – make it really appealing. Yeah, it's very transparent, more so than fiat currency. With more businesses accepting Bitcoin, that means more consumers need to have Bitcoin to spend. And I know one of the ways that people are trying to get Bitcoin to the consumers is through ATMs. Do you think Nashville is going to have an ATM in our future? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would like it. Um, I've been talking to some people who have been in the banking industry. You know, personally, the regulatory environment just kind of scares me and yeah. <laughs> makes me curl up. Um, it's why I started an internet company was because there was very little regulation and still is very little regulation in it. You know, the Bitcoin ATM is probably going to involve quite a bit of regulation when it comes to KYC, which is know your customer. Banks have to deal with it all the time and know your customer. It's it's basically for transactions over a thousand, there's a certain amount you need to have and over 10,000, you know, there's a certain other litany of things that you need to have so that you can help prevent laundering of money, organized crime, all the things that most people agree are bad. Um, and so if I do something like that, I need a partner who's been in banking or has done that sort of thing. I would love to. And like I said, I'm talking to a few people, but trying to sort of bring those worlds together of like tried and true banking and Bitcoin and put those opportunities together in such a way that someone says, you know what, I understand that there are risks, but I also understand that there's a great payoff in the long term. Hopefully I can find that partner who, who will want to do that. But uh, cool. Austin just put one in uh, three days ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we'll and be then, there next week. And then what about Seattle? Uh, I, th I think I heard something about one going in there too. Yeah. And they're the uh, RoboCoin machines, which are the big daddies. They're like twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000. They <laughs> both dispense cash and accept cash. And you've got the... And, I don't and you know can't to, walk off with it? It's big. <laughs> you probably could. But I think, I think any ATM like this, you're not going to stick it on a street corner, cement it in. You're going to put it inside a public venue, right? Yeah. Put it inside a, a restaurant that's in a nice central location or a, a mall or, I don't know, something where it's relatively secure. Mm -hmm. And then what? There's the Lama Sao machines. I don't know how to say that. Did I say that right? So these machines are a one-way. They're smaller, but you just put money in. 
and then they fund your QR code, but you can't pull money out. Right. That right. sounds much easier to do. To yeah. And they're a lot cheaper. They're like 5,000. Yeah. And then you've got the real little micro ones that are $1,000, $2,000. And I can't remember the name of the guy, but I think uh, local Bitcoins is sort of slapping their name on some of those so that I, as a local Bitcoin merchant, could meet someone with this machine. It's basically, oh. it's kind of a glorified iPad with a dollar bill acceptor. Right. Or an Android device with a dollar bill acceptor. Mm. You can just, instead of having to do all the calculations, they just show up with the money and their QR code and you bip, 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 and, and then it all and goes into a little cardboard shoebox. Exactly, <laughs> 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 yes. Take it out. Yeah. And you wad it up and stick it in your pocket and walk <laughs> Well, uh, Bill, we're going to have to wrap up, but I have one last question for you. Let your imagination run wild for a second. What do you think is the worst thing that could happen with Bitcoin? And what do you think is the best thing that could happen with Bitcoin? Well, I, I think the worst thing, obviously, is that there's some flaw that can't reasonably be fixed. Okay, so it would be some flaw where... Uh, you know, every Bitcoin in existence so far got transferred to one address <laughs> and, and nobody could do anything about it, right? Mm. I mean, that's the worst possible. Unless yeah. it's my address. Yeah, unless it's your, be okay. no, even still, though, you know, even you're, still, yeah. you're, you're out of luck. That's right. Yeah, if you're uh, king so, of all the gold, you can't spend it anymore. Yeah, so that's, that's right. That's the worst possible thing, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, even pe- people say, you know, all these little catastrophes and crises like Mount Gox, you know, I, I view Mount Gox as Bernie Madoff, right? I mean, the dollar didn't <laughs> die because Bernie Madoff did something terrible. The dollar just kind of kept going on. And so, and my understanding is that Bernie bilked people out of like 20 billion. And I think That's Gox was only a hundred and, how much was it? Was it 400 million? Yeah, only four hundred million. Or only four hundred hey, million. Hey, that is one fifth what Bernie built people right, and out let's, of. Let's not forget. I'm, when I'm, it comes sorry, to, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to seem unsympathetic to those people who had money in Gox. What I'm trying to do is put this in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if a, it has nothing to do with the currency itself, and, mm-hmm. and B, it's relatively small in the big picture. And the other thing that so I'm going to just kind of keep you know, going down this uh, line. The other thing that astounds me is that so we watched it sink last night to about four hundred. I think it. I think it dropped to four hundred. Yeah, that's briefly. when I was spending Bitcoin. <laughs> nice. Yeah. By by high solo. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so at the four hundred mark, when it was the lowest, somebody or multiple people pulled about two million dollars out of their wallets and popped it up to four forty. Now, where else could you spend two million dollars and move a stock ten percent? Let's like Apple or whatever. You wouldn't move it 10%. You'd move it no. a fraction of a percent. Right. And what that tells me is that even though we look at this number uh, 500 or 400 or 600, and we look at this number and we think it's such a big number, it's all about market cap, right? And it's all about the potential, the long-term potential of it. And the fact that only $2 million can move it 10% tells me that there's a ton ton of upside. I'm just, I'm not even trying to be, I'm not trying to be, uh, hey, go get it to help my investment out. I'm just being realistic here. If, yeah. if 2 million can move at 10%, then 20 million can probably double it. 20 million bucks. Yeah. I mean, I don't have 20 million bucks. There's plenty of people who have 20 million bucks. Yeah. So the right investors putting cash into Bitcoin in the right way is going to have a huge effect. Well, or, or even just the, even just the cadence of the in and out of money. I mean, let's say that you need to wire money to somebody somewhere else and you decide to use this wiring company, not Western Union because they don't use Bitcoin network, but you just decide to use this company. Well, you give them the cash and they have, they may have other uh, facilities in other countries and they're going to put it into Bitcoin long enough to wire it across and then sell it. So mm-hmm. it has to sit in the system for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Well, that, your 20 bucks or your 100 bucks wasn't much, but if there's 100,000 people all wiring that at the same, so we get this threshold effect of even if people don't permanently have Bitcoin, if they're using it as a communication medium, they're raising the yeah, it's gonna go threshold up. of demand and the supply is still limited. So, you know, one of the greatest articles I've read about that is it's a social current. The more people who are involved in it, the, the more value it has for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, well, it's been mm-hmm. said on a previous show that if everybody who's using Bitcoin now was just to get two or three of their friends to use it, then that would be the tipping point for Bitcoin. And all of a sudden it would be adopted globally. And so the first thing I did was send $5 worth to my sister <laughs> and $5 worth to my brother. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think I got the email back from Coinbase just this week that my brother forgot to open his email and I got my Bitcoin back, but I'll try again. I'll try again. Well, you, you could probably get a better deal now. I think it was 650 or 700 last, last week. So it's, you know, it's at 500 now. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Can you tell our listeners again how they can find you and your company? Yeah, just uh, musiccitybitcoins.com. Um, Great. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. We'll see you again Thank soon. You. We'll see you at the meetup. Thanks, Great. Man. So, John, 
Can you share any stories with us about mining? You know, Lidge, you've probably heard this story before, but I thought it might be worth telling again, and maybe it'll help some of our listeners who are thinking about mining or who are on the fence about it. So when I first thought about mining Litecoins, it was back when they were trading at about $2 each. Um, At that time, I was communicating with a few of the guys on btce.com where I was getting some tech advice, and one guy advised me to not waste my money building a mining rig and instead to spend any money I might put into that rig into actually buying Litecoins, okay? So I didn't take that advice. But anyway, I was so obsessed with the thought of mining, I went ahead and I listened to another tech guy there on BTCE who explained to me exactly what to buy. Uh, So I bought the GPUs, the motherboard, etc. I bought it all from Newegg, and I probably spent about mm, maybe a little over over $1,500. At that time, I remember $1,500 would have bought me about 750 Litecoins because, as I mentioned, they were at about $2 each at the time. Anyway, so I found another tech guy, a really nice guy from Germany, who I paid about 20 Litecoins to, and that was about, again, about $40 at that time, to help me set up everything over Skype. So I'm on the phone with this guy from Germany every night for a week. I finally get everything set up after many, many trials and errors, and then I was finally mining Litecoins. And, uh, you know, success, right? So at that time, I had, uh, let's see, I had three GPUs, 37950s running, and uh, I think I had a hash rate of like 1.25 mega hashes. So I was mining about a Litecoin per day, and I remember um, thinking, hey, this is not bad, even though, you know, Litecoins were worth at that time, like they were moving up to $3, $5. And I thought, well, it's going to be great if Litecoins just keep going up, right? Anyway, and this, you know, it really didn't seem like it was worth it on one level until Litecoins really started going up in value. Um, and then when they were trading at about $30 each, I was feeling really good about the project. Like, hey, I'm making $30. a day, you know, minus a little bit of electricity, you know, mining Litecoins, piece of cake, right? But then, of course, (laughs) the difficulty started going up as it's going to continue to do and as it's done since then. And it got to the point where I was only mining uh, one Litecoin every other day. Then the difficulty went up again and I was only mining one Litecoin about every four days. And I thought, oh, well, this isn't as good as it was, but as long as Litecoins keep going up, things are going to be okay. And then, uh, then tragedy struck. I guess it was within about a two-week period, all of my GPUs, each one of the three GPUs, started having fan problems. And this was weird, but after talking to a tech guy on the phone with the company, he pretty much determined that it must have been a bad batch of GPUs for one of the fans on each of them to go out at the same time, right? So, Lidge, when all is said and done, here's what happened. I mined a total of about 120 Litecoins during my short mining career. And if I had taken the first tech guy's advice and just spent the $1,500 plus on buying Litecoins, I could have sold those 750 Litecoins for over, get this, $30,000. And that's when Litecoins had hit their peak of about $40 a few months back, remember? So needless to say, that makes me a little bit ill when I think about that, considering that like my total profit has been really... I think I've maybe made enough to almost cover the $1,500 I spent. So it's really so far been like a break-even proposition. So um, needless to say, I'd like to mine some more and try to make back some of that money that I spent initially. So anyway, that's my Litecoin mining story. Sorry if it wasn't more thrilling, but uh, there it is. Thanks for listening. Hello? Hello, Lidge. Is that you, John? Where are you? Oh, across town. I'm calling you on the Bitcoins and Gravy hotline. I'm glad you answered. Oh, yeah, man. Is that what this is? The Bitcoins and Gravy hotline. I like it. It's like the bath phone, but it's the Bitcoins and Gravy hotline. Yeah, I left it in the studio. I was hoping you'd find it. What's the number? It's uh, 615-208-5198. So you said that's 615-208-5198? Yep, and uh, our listeners can call in anytime they want to. Well, John, so what's it for? If listeners have a question or they have a comment or they want to yell at us about something, just call the number. Okay, cool. So they can leave us a message at that number? Yep, they can leave a message and uh, we'll play it on the show. Groovy. And if they don't want to use their voice on the show, they could let us know and we could just simply repeat their question and have it answered on the show. Absolutely. That's their choice. I like it. Great idea. So that number, again, is 615-208-5198. Call the Bitcoins and Gravy Hotline. That's right, 615-208-5198. That's 615-208-5198. Call today. On today's show, we have Levi Self, whom we met at the first Nashville Bitcoin meetup. Levi, welcome. Thank you. 
Could you tell us about your experience mining bitcoins? And in fact, could you explain it to me or to us in such a way as if you were describing it to a beginner, the whole process? I can certainly try. Uh, I don't know that I would describe myself as an early miner. Uh, I started probably mid or late 2011. That's early for some, late for others. I read an article about it online and wanted to get into Bitcoin. It was hard to purchase them at the time. Uh, so I started looking around at the alternatives, which the other alternative for acquiring Bitcoins is to actually generate them using software, mm -hmm. which is a process called mining. Uh, at the time, the sort of standard way of doing it was to use graphics cards, the same graphics cards that you use to play video games on your computer. Uh, that was sort of the second generation of mining after just using the normal processor in your computer. So I bought a rig that had two pretty fancy graphics cards, uh, downloaded the software, followed the tutorials, and just started generating bitcoins. So you join a mining pool, which is a big group of miners, and the operator who runs the pool takes a small fee, a small percentage. I believe it was Eligius at the time. There were several. That sounds like my pool, Lidge. The Lidge pool? It may have oh, been. It was Lidge pool, it yeah. May I have like been. it. Uh, now, was Slush around at that time, Slush pool? I believe it was. Huh, interesting. Okay. The pools are fairly old, and I think by the time graphics cards, or perhaps even before graphics cards became the de facto method of mining, pools were really a main way to sort of decrease the volatility of your mining returns. Because the way that the Bitcoin protocol is set up, you get a reward for mining a block. So what that means is all the transactions that are coming into the Bitcoin world, if someone sends money from A to B, regardless of where they're sending it from, from who to where, all those transactions that come on in a, about a 10-minute period get added to a block. It is the job of miners to solve that block, which essentially means running a program that increments the numbers, starting at one, then going to two, going to three, and so forth, and performing an algorithm on a bunch of data until they get lucky enough that the result of running that algorithm is below a certain threshold, which is called the difficulty. This difficulty number actually adjusts over time, and the difficulty number is actually what controls the rate of production of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's are meant to be produced at a certain rate so that in the first four years, half of all Bitcoins will be produced. In the next four years, 75% of Bitcoins will have been produced and so forth. In order to make that work, as more and more people get in the mining game, the difficulty has to be increased to adjust for that. Is the difficulty something that's part of a um, decentralized feedback loop or does every single miner have an autom like an instant feedback loop going on within their mining app like everything in the bitcoin world it is a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer system because there is a specific way in which the difficulty is meant to be adjusted all of the clients that are on the bitcoin network and there are hundreds of thousands of them at this point i'm sure if not more all of them calculate what the new difficulty should be and if they disagree with each other, they will no longer accept each other's blocks. So it is this sort of sense that everyone's following the same rules that keeps everyone honest. Yeah, those those rules are recorded and, and I believe were developed by Satoshi himself, the way that it's supposed to work. It's not the only way that such a system could be designed. I believe Nick Zabo, when he wrote his original papers, I believe in 2007, he envisioned instead of having a difficulty system, having a timestamp on every coin that was produced and he envisioned that there would be an open market of trading where people would actually voluntarily choose to pay more for older coins than newer coins. I'm sure there are good reasons to support that theory, but the difficulty system that Satoshi came up with actually is much more preferable in my mind, despite having some drawbacks, because all Bitcoins are the same. It's a fungible system where no Bitcoin is different from any other in terms of value. 
I think that's important. Aren't the rules established by the math of the algorithm? They're agreed upon. It could be changed. Like the rate at which Bitcoins are produced could easily be changed. And this is a frequently tuned parameter in other altcoins, such as Dogecoin and Litecoin. Uh, Dogecoin is a new currency that actually takes the rate of coin production to an extreme. All the coins will be produced in a very short period of time, and there will be many, many more coins than than there will be in Bitcoin or even Litecoin for that matter. So they're very light, very, very light, feather light, in fact. Do you want to talk about doggy coin? You mean Dogecoin? Yeah, some people are calling it ah, Dogecoin, right? Dogecoin. Yeah. No, I don't know. No, don't some know. people are calling it Dogecoin. Yeah, I've heard it, I've heard it yeah. both ways. I've, I got to go with doggy coin myself. Yeah, doggy I prefer coin. that. That's much cooler. I like it, and, and, and it really is uh, based on a dog. So, Do you guys own any doggy coins yourselves? I don't. I only own Bitcoins. I, I have not really seriously got into any other coins. Yeah, me too. I'm only in Bitcoins. Of course, I'm pretty brand new, so... I own some doggy coins, I have to confess. Oh, nice. Not that many. Nothing wrong with diversifying. No, no. uh, I think it's a good idea, and if you want to do some trading slash gambling, I think it's a good idea, too, just to sort of do some day trading or playing around with other currencies because it's kind of like a penny stock. They're so cheap, and the pressures on them from just one famous person saying on Twitter that the value should increase can cause them to swing so much in, a, in one day. You can make a lot of money. If you get lucky, and who yeah. knows what they could be used for, something could come up that would blow people away, and everybody would be using doggy coins. It'd be the coolest thing for five years. And that you know, in that time, if you had 100,000 of them, you'd do real well. Mm-hmm. Do we know if they have the same kind of utility that Bitcoin has? Are they valuable in that respect? I think uh, they have the capacity to have the same level of utility. I think what utility Bitcoin has has been established over time. Well, proof of existence and that sort of thing. I believe so. So Doggycoin is a clone of Litecoin, which in turn is a clone of Bitcoin with modifications. And I believe Litecoin and Doggycoin maintained all of the original protocol specifications. That is to say, they didn't weaken the ability of Bitcoin in those respects. So basically, the way that Bitcoin works is when you output Bitcoins to a person in your transaction, when you create a transaction that has an output to somebody, in that output, uh, you create a script every time you create a transaction. You're not actually doing it. Your software is doing it. But this script is usually a boilerplate that just kind of says the only thing that that the person you're sending it to has to do to redeem this is provide their private key. Sign it. That's basically all they have to do. But the flexibility comes in in the fact that this is actually almost a complete programming language based on fourth where you can actually say, no, they, they have to do something more. Maybe it has to be three people that verify it, or maybe it has to be they have to do something else. I think the sky's the limit on what this potential can be used for, but most of it's just been boilerplate up till now. So these kinds of potentials that are hidden within the Bitcoin protocol, I think, are going to be the source of a lot of value creation, probably for the startups that are being founded as we speak. Okay, let's say that everything that's being built on Bitcoin, all the startups, let's say that they all do really well. And they, you know, you can do any kind of contract and all this and the Bitcoin protocol becomes as important as TCP IP, a fundamental base level protocol the financial world can't live without. What is the correlation between that and Bitcoin, the currency? If the Bitcoin base level protocol does really well, is that a guarantee that Bitcoins are going to do really well or not? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer. I mean, I mean, the answer. (laughs) If all you want is the Bitcoin protocol in a way similar to TCP/IP, that's free for the world and no one has to pay for. It's just a protocol. Yeah, it wouldn't be hard to imagine some of the clones that have been created, sort of like BitMessage and things like that. Uh, It wouldn't be hard to imagine a, a Bitcoin protocol that wasn't attached to monetary value by design, but in most other respects was basically exactly the same. Something like that could emerge and run alongside Bitcoin quite easily and allow for contracts, things like that. I think it was suggested in a conversation that I had at the first Bitcoin meetup. Someone said there essentially needs to be a no-op in Bitcoin. There needs to be something that does what Bitcoin does without actually transferring any Bitcoins, transferring zero Bitcoins to a particular output. So Bitcoin transactions, the way that they work is whenever you form one, your inputs are all previous outputs, 
That's the whole concept mm-hmm. of the blockchain. Okay. You can't take part of a previous output. You have to completely wipe what was sent to you. But where it gets split up is in the outputs. So a single transaction can have many inputs and many outputs. Those outputs are what you're creating when you form the transaction. You get the inputs that you need in order to have enough to cover the outputs, but it's not impossible to make a zero Bitcoin output that did something else. Hmm. It just had data encoded in it. What do you envision? Uh, something like these contracts that people are talking about, proof of existence, things like that, that just say, hey, this person really did agree to sell me this house or whatever. It's encoded in the blockchain, but no Bitcoins changed hands to do that encoding. The only thing that might have changed hands is the cost in the Bitcoin fee that's paid to the miners. That makes me feel like the Bitcoin protocol can take off and we don't really need Bitcoins, the currency anymore. We can use the blockchain for all of these contracts. You don't even have to use a Satoshi. You could use a millibitcoin, a Satoshi, a thousandth of a Satoshi or nothing at all. And you can still do everything you need to do. So where does that leave the currency? Right. In, in the argument against having such a zero Bitcoin transaction is just that because Bitcoins are so divisible, they can be divided to a very small piece. I don't know how 100 billion is that it? 100 million. That That may eventually end up being some money, you know, I don't know how much, but currently that's virtually nothing. So there's no real pressure to develop something like a no-op in Mm -hmm. Bitcoin at this point. But if there ever is, the developers might choose to do that. And generally what I've seen is when the reference client implements something, the community generally agrees and all the other clients implement it too. So there's usually not problems with forking the blockchain and so forth. There might be arguments, but I think the resolutions generally are consensus-based. You know, something might swing really non-consensus-based where only 40% of people wanted to go this way, but Gavin and the main Bitcoin developers maybe chose that way for their technical reasons. But it's still somewhat consensus-based, even if that happened, I think. The community's still voting together collectively. What do you think about the possibility of Bitcoin being supplanted? That is an interesting question. I really don't know. My own personal opinion is that Bitcoin has too much of a first mover advantage to be supplanted. I think there can be companion currencies. That was the goal of Litecoin, and I think it might be a similar goal of Doggy Coin. Litecoin's stated goal was to be silver to Bitcoin's goal. They never intended to supplant it entirely and become the main cryptocurrency of use. So that seems like a more likely future than just having something completely take over and Bitcoin becoming a secondary currency. Levi, self has been fantastic to have you here on the podcast, and thanks so yeah, much man. for joining us here thanks, at the Levi. studio. On a Friday night, no less. Yeah, man. Yeah. This is great. So much for online dating. Oh, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, to the moon, I guess, is my yeah, man. final. I like uh, to hear that. Bitcoin to the moon. All right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's show with Paul Vigna, Bill Butler, and Levi Self. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate your time and attention. Hey, Lidge, let's also give a special thanks to our friends in Southern California listening in on station KCAA 1050 AM. Tune in Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific time to hear new episodes of Bitcoins and Gravy. And make sure to catch more great shows from the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network airing all week right here on KCAA 1050 AM or KCAARadio.com. You can also download the podcast from letstalkbitcoin.com. That's right, John. Listeners can find the show notes at letstalkbitcoin.com, as well as our tipping addresses there. And you can also check out the full cast of Let's Talk Bitcoin shows that includes Mad Money Machine with Paul Boyer, Living Freely with Stephanie Murphy, Ed and Ethan's Bitcoin Report, and of course, Let's Talk Bitcoin with Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. If you have questions or comments, please email us at bitcoinsandgravy at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and leave a review on iTunes, whether three stars or five stars. It's your reviews that help new listeners discover all the shows on Let's Talk Bitcoin. And it's your generous tips that allow us to create the show. Our tipping address can be found at the show notes for Bitcoins and Gravy at letstalkbitcoin.com. And we thank you in advance for your generous contributions. I'm John Barrett. And I'm Lyd Shaw. 
And you've been listening to Bitcoins and Gravy from East Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, and Lidge and I are very excited to be going down to Austin for the Texas Bitcoin Conference, where we plan to get some great interviews from some of the finest brains in the Bitcoin world. And we're bringing along a git fiddle and a harp. Hope to see you in Austin March 5th and 6th. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go Y'all be good to each other out there, you hear?